This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show. After a little bit of a hiatus, I have returned once again your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Danny M. Lavery. With me in the studio this week is Mistress Justine Cross, a lifestyle dominatrix and BDSM consultant based in Los Angeles. She owns and operates Dungeon East, a minimal modern paradise, and Dungeon West, its atmospheric West LA counterpart. She is the boss of everyone except her cat. No one is the boss of cats. Justine, welcome. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, not just for coming on the show, but having such a great description of like the two like domains that you have, which is just like if you want, you know, minimalism, go east. If you want atmosphere, go west. There you go. Well, maybe you'll visit one or both, you know. It sounds fabulous. And I have not been in L.A. in uh, in just too, too long. And I like atmosphere. Yeah, no, it would be very nice. Or you can, you know, see my cat, whichever, you know, dungeon or cat, you know. <laughs> I lost um, my cat earlier this year and I miss Aww. cats. So yeah. I'm definitely, definitely up for visiting other people's cats. They're very snuggly and it's very cold out. I'm, I'm sorry that I didn't save you a cat question because we had a couple come in this week. But instead, I have given you a dog and friend's husband question. Well, that's that works for me because I have lots to say about husbands. Good. Then I'm going to have you read this first letter, if that's all right with all right, you. Sure. Subject, that growly, howly, whiny, talking thing. Dear Prudence, my very good friend from college is now married with two small kids. I'm married and have a big, dumb dog. When we visit each other about twice a year, there is always tension with her husband and my dog. The kids and the dog all like each other and are very cautiously interested in playing with each other, with supervision, of course. Every once in a while, they need a short break from each other. The dog barks at a passing car and the kids get scared. A kid throws a tantrum and the dog gets spooked. It all seems fine and normal to me and their mom, but her husband is always on high alert and says weird things directly to my dog like, if you bite my baby, I will kill you, which is obviously meant to put me on notice as if I'm not already watching the situation closely. He also gets annoyed that I don't apologize on behalf of the dog when he does something that freaks the kids out. I'm not exactly over here keeping score, but I don't believe he's ever apologized for his children doing normal kid stuff like pulling my hair with mac and cheese hands. Putting the dog in the other room for an extended period of time isn't an option because he's just never been made to do that before and barks incessantly. My husband is pretty neutral in all of this, but picks up on tension from the dad and keeps a close eye on the dog at all times. How can I smooth out this dynamic in the future? We see each other twice a year and generally have a very good time. The mom and I are really on the same page that kids and dogs both come with challenges and that it's our job to keep them getting along as long as they're all mostly having fun. But the dad seems dead set on making his opinion known at all times that he doesn't trust us or the dog, that he's one misstep away from violence, and that anything the kids do is natural, but anything the dog does is inherently ill-willed. For the record, my dog isn't a biter or a jumper, but he does that growly, howly, whiny talking thing when he gets overwhelmed. Um, I think that it's not a, a kids versus dog problem. It sounds like it's more of like the dog versus the husband problem. And to me, it sounds like that actually the the husband is really scared of the dog. Like it, 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 to me, it seemed like did did he get attacked by a dog at some point in his life? And it's like that's what really struck me. And it's interesting that no one's had a conversation with this where it's like, it's interesting to me that the husband says, like, he doesn't trust us. Like, he doesn't trust his wife and, like, her college friend. Like, that's really interesting. Like, because an animal is going to behave how it's going to behave. But, like, to not trust the, you know, the women here. Don't trust women, you know. <laughs> they know about highlighter and contouring and all of that, you know. It, it did strike me as, like, yeah, the the most obvious problem to me is, like, figuring out what's making him uncomfortable mm-hmm. if I, you know, it sounds like the letter writer is fairly self-aware, yeah. but it's also true that sometimes when it comes to people's dogs, mm-hmm. they tend to think like, oh, I know the dog's not actually going to mm-hmm. escalate. But somebody else who's like, I don't really know your dog mm-hmm. and I'm a little stressed out here. Um, yeah, like there there might potentially be moments where 
he he doesn't know what's going to happen next. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think the first thing that you do is you say to your friend from college, like, hey, before your next visit, I'd love to. I'm sure you have noticed this. Your husband seems really upset whenever we get together. Have you talked to him about this? Do you think you could talk to him about this? Because first, I want him to feel comfortable and safe in my home. Mm-hmm. And then also, I don't want us to get together and to have to just like sit there when your husband says things like, I'll kill you if you hurt my children to yeah. the dog. Like, that's a weird. <laughs> that, that's very uncomfortable. But to me, it just sounded it just sounds so much like he's afraid. And it's like I, I I'm totally I mean, it's not like a dog side or a kid side. Like I'm for like everyone having a good time side. But I think that it's important to know that both like kids and dogs are unpredictable. And it's like these sound like very young children and you can't they're on the same level in terms of understanding consequences to their actions. Like you can't explain to a child like to maybe like don't grab the dog's ear. You can't explain to the dog like don't bark. You or know, rather like you can, but then you have to do that action on the kid's behalf. Right. Exactly. Like you but you can only have an adult conversation here with the adult people involved. Like neither the kid or the dog are going to be acting any different. They're, they're acting totally normally. They're acting like kids. They're acting like a dog. It's more like the adults need to have a conversation about like, yes, like why talk to your husband about why what how can we move forward in a different way right and he would not be the first person i think who felt scared and covered it up with a little bit of aggression yes of like i'm not scared i just well i'll kill that dog and it's, it's just like, about the kids yeah and it's like I, I think he's probably scared and the one thing that i would say to the letter writer is putting the dog in the other room isn't an option because he's never had to do that before and he barks incessantly i would say that part I don't know that I would say it's incumbent upon you, but I would encourage you to consider like for a couple of weeks or months hiring a dog trainer to come visit you because mm-hmm. you need to be able to have other options. Um, and and I don't think it's that unusual to say you can train your dog to mm-hmm. be alone in a room for a couple of hours without screaming the whole time. Mm-hmm. So I, I would encourage you to there, there's just going to be times in your life when you're not going to be able to be around your dog 24-7 and it would be good to prepare for that even if it was just like so that someday if you want to go on a vacation of your own you can leave your dog at a kennel and not worry that it's going to be screaming for hours on end yeah totally i mean because it's it's a lot of it is like the socialization where they're only seeing each other a couple of times a year for it sounds like a couple of days so Mm -hmm. like the dog is just not used to being around these kids and same thing for the kids it's not used to being around the dog um it just it kind of reminds me of like you ever see like parents like dancing with their kids and they're dancing like really stupid and cheesy and they're making it sound like oh it's just like I, I just want to be here for like the kids and I'm just dancing like this. But it's like, you know, they're actually the bad dancer. I can picture they're covering this. It yes. up. Yeah. They're covering it up by being like, you know, oh, no, it's just the kids a bad dancer. But really, it's like the adult is a bad dancer. So I feel like, oh, I'm really scared. You know, like, oh, no, it's just about the kids. But it's like, I, I again, I just feel like he is afraid of the dog in some way that needs that hasn't been addressed or talked through in any way. Right. So just, yeah. Yeah. So I, I like the idea. Talk to your friend. Encourage her to talk to her husband. And then for yourself, you know, if they have that talk and he still does that. I think you should address it. Like if he says to your dog, I'm going to kill you, I think that's a great point to stop and say like, hey, Robert, that's a very intense thing to say. Are you (laughs) feeling safe right now? Are you afraid of something? Is there something that I can help explain Mm -hmm. to you? I'm... I'm I'm paying you your wife and I are both paying careful attention to the kids. Mm. I don't think anyone's in danger. How can I help you feel safe? Maybe he will get a little embarrassed by that. That's okay. I don't yeah. think it's necessarily an inherently rude or sarcastic thing to say and it just strikes me as uh, that's a statement that requires a response from you, I think. Right. Or saying something more not like, how can I make you feel more comfortable here or right. something like that? Not just like, hey, scaredy cat, scared of the dog. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then that interpretation, it's like a, a friendlier. Yeah, friendly. And I think, too, yeah. like that's going to eventually start to freak out the kids. They might mm-hmm. be a little young to be able to understand quite what mm-hmm. that means. But as they get a little older, if they're like, I thought we were having a nice time and now my dad is threatening to kill a dog, <laughs> you know, that's going to they will start to notice that, too. So. I think right now it sounds like you and your friend are doing everything to keep the situation mm-hmm. relatively within normal limits. And so while I think it would be nice to to figure out ways to make sure that your dog can be alone for a little while without losing it, um, I also don't mean to suggest like your dog is a, a terribly trained dog and it's up to you to make sure that he behaves perfectly at all times. So uh, this is kind of a nice segue because we're moving from like a troublesome dog-ish to like a troublesome boyfriend. <laughs> Troublesome with air quotes. This also feels very like, this feels like a dog problem. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I take my boyfriend to the dog park and all the other boyfriends won't play with him. And like, what do I do? But they kind of do. Anyway, yeah, I've, I've 
interesting thing. Okay, yeah, go on. Yeah, so uh, I get to take this one. Yes. Um, this one is called uh, My Widely Disliked Boyfriend and Me, <laughs> which is just wonderful. Uh, dear Prudence, I have a new boyfriend who I love deeply. He also happens to be my coworker at a fine dining establishment. The trouble is he is widely disliked at my workplace, despite all his good traits. This is because he's a slow waiter. He chats with tables for too long, and he lingers in the service station just chatting with friends about his weekend. The fact that he is not perfect at waiting tables doesn't bother me. The fact that he is disliked for it, and widely so, his name is basically a synonym for bad waiter, definitely bothers me. No one at work knows we are dating, and people come up to me to complain about him at least once a week. I refuse to break up with someone because they aren't perfect at waiting tables. But I also don't want my coworkers <laughs> to lose respect for me because I'm dating someone they dislike so much. I think he's become a bit of a lightning rod, and people will make jokes in my presence about the type of girl who would date him. What do I do? Do I tell my coworkers to screw off and live happily ever after with my chatty, <laughs> lingering boy? I'm sorry, there's something about the expression, my chatty, lingering boy, that just, just, it feels like a line from a Sweet Valley High book. I I think this is a Sweet Valley High problem, because it's it's not really a problem. Um, You know, it's like your boyfriend chats too much at a fine dining establishment. <laughs> like I, you know, I, as I frequent fine dining establishments, spending other people's money, that's kind of your job to to talk bullshit about like, you know, the humidity level in bread and like the classi- classification system of like Bordeaux wines. Like you're supposed to know that. Like, I'm not sure that that's such a problem. Um, yeah, this feels like such a classic, like, I wonder if your boyfriend worries half as much about whether or not other people like you as you worry about whether or not other people like him. Yes. And I also actually but but mostly that that is very true. But I also just don't think he's actually disliked because it's like she when I'm sorry, the letter writer first says, you know, my widely disliked boyfriend. And I thought, oh, my God, like, what is this guy's deal? Like, what is it going to be? It's going to be so horrific. Like, what does he do? Like, kill kittens? I don't know. And then it's like he just talks too much. And it's like but then the letter writer also says just chatting with friends. So So he has friends on the staff. Yeah, exactly. So there's friends on the staff. and. And I think that there's just like a lot of I was laughing so hard at this because in a very genuinely sweet, like not making fun of kind of way, but just in a sort of endearing way that it's like a lot of hyperbole and saying like, you know, and I, you know, a new boyfriend. And then, you know, my only two options are to tell my coworkers to screw off or live happily ever after mm-hmm. with with him. Um and again, I think this is I think you talk about this before that it's like it's this is kind of why it's always not not always the best idea to date someone that you're actively working with and you're hearing what other people are saying about them and, and these ways. And there's probably generally there's company policies against dating in the workplace for this reason. But it's know? also like in the restaurant industry, like yeah. <laughs> they might have policies, but right. everyone does. Oh, no, 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 no. Of course. Of course. But it's like I'm curious why like no one knows that they're dating or if they don't want to make that. Uh, you know why that but again like i don't really think it's a it's a problem as you it's like they're not really a bad waiter they wouldn't be able to work there you know right yeah like it's it's clearly not yet a problem with management Mm -hmm. and you say it's fine dining so it's not like i i would be surprised if like other people had to pick up his slack i think so it's unlikely that it's actually affecting the work that other people have to do so much as just like it's like it seems like he's getting away with being chiller and people resent that, which is like fine. I, I don't really think you have to do much here. All you have to do is if someone tries to talk shit to you about him is to say something like, I actually like him. Yeah, I think he's cool. Uh, that doesn't it, people won't be like, oh, my God, you must be dating. They'll just be like, oh, uh, like they'll feel the flare of discomfort that you discomfort that you feel when you've been talking shit about someone that you realize that the shit talk receiver yeah. actually likes. And then it'll be fine. Right. Yeah. I'm also just wondering if if their sort of read of the situation is like, is this just kind of like, oh, there goes that, you know, chatty Kathy kind of thing. And they think this is like a huge insult and people dislike them so much because there just didn't seem like anything else here. Like, you know, I don't know. It's like office politics or, you know, uh, waiter politics or whatever. Like, I don't know if people have sort of these like nicknames or they're just like, oh, yeah, that person's on it again. But it doesn't go any further than that. No one's thinking no one's holding on to it as much as this person is holding on to it. Right. I I totally understand the feeling extra sensitive. And I also Mm -hmm. totally understand that feeling of like, I must defend my boyfriend's honor. (laughs) I with this. I waited tables uh, for a number of years. And at one point, one summer, I did work at a restaurant with my boyfriend and we were both waiters. And I was like, 
oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the world. I love him so much and we have to be professional at work. But periodically I can look at him from across the room and just think about like, you're the greatest man in the world and I love you. <laughs> and I would die for you and I would die for your honor and I will do anything to increase the glory of your name. Like yeah. very intense. So I, and yeah, like when you work as a waiter, there's often just like so many like ways in which you are pressed together at all mm-hmm. times and ways in which it feels like you're being slammed from the moment your shift starts to the moment it ends. So I, I understand that like people probably get very like het mm-hmm. up about the idea of somebody who seems to be getting away with doing less work. Um, it doesn't sound like they're doing less work. It just sounds like they're they're. uh, the boyfriend is just talking a little bit too long. So I actually read that as more like, is he doing a really great job of talking, you know, Mm -hmm. fine dining bullshit that he's actually getting really good tips? Right. Like, that's more how I read it because I would be very excited, you know, and I am very excited when, like, waiters talk to me for a long time and I get to talk about, like, wine from Canary Islands and, like, all of this stuff. And it's like, I also wonder if, like, do people actually know that you're dating him? And, you know, because you always think you're, like, slick. But no, right. you're never that slick. Because, no. guys, you just said, like, oh, I just looked across the way. Like, right, right, right. I mean, maybe, <laughs> like, they're, maybe they're just kind of, like, you know. Like, maybe they're better at keeping it under wraps <laughs> than I was. But, yeah, basically, I would say, you know, if people lose respect for you because they're you're dating the guy who's a little slow at tables, like, I I don't think that there's something that you could do to preserve their respect. I think that this is just a situation where all you need to do is like say to the people who come up to you to talk shit about him, like, I actually think he's cool. I don't want to talk shit about him. That's all you have to do. If at some point you two decide that you're going to announce that you're dating at work, live with the fact that some people will be like, what? But he talks a lot to customers and like, that's going to be fine. And you're fine. Yeah. I mean, I think that's like a good rule of thumb. Like anyway, if like someone's talking about someone um, that and you don't want to hear it and just saying like, no, thanks. I'm not here for that conversation. But the other thing is like, you know, a really good advice that I was given in college was never trust people who talk about other people behind your back, their back, because they're obviously doing the same thing to you. So like maybe you are like, you know, the neurotic one or something else. And it's like your boyfriend's like the long talker and you're this, you know, it's like just but it also just might not. I, I just got the feeling that like no one is as, in, as invested as this is like this person as you said so right right um and i think at this point too we're get, we're like we've done as close a reading as we yeah, can yeah, no, okay, and now yeah. i'm like we're in danger of overthinking it too. okay yeah, so yeah totally we'll move on to the next one which uh, i'm excited for us to get to talk about yes i am too okay um subject not cheating My wife and I have an open marriage. She lost all interest in sex after a serious illness and the birth of our son. We spent years in counseling, but we were only in our early 30s. I wasn't willing to be celibate for the rest of our married life. The deal we hammered out was that I would see an ex-girlfriend, Valerie, for a few days twice a year. Everyone was all right with us for a decade until Valerie told me she was ending the arrangement to get married. I am happy for Valerie, but I am stumped about what to do. My wife still isn't interested in sex. The last time we were intimate was to have our daughter five years ago. Seeing a sex worker or hooking up with strangers is off the table, even if I had any clue how to successfully do it. The few dates I managed to get seemed excited I was married, but interest dried up when my arrangement came to light. I don't know what to do. I am a middle-aged man who has been with four women in my life. My wife is not interested in talking about this anymore and tells me to find another Val. We are going to the wedding, but I don't know how to do that. Can you assist me? So I think, first of all, if you two need to not go to the wedding, yes, uh, as, assuming it's not like two weeks away, um, send your regrets. Let Valerie know that you would love to be there to support her, but that you're not going to be able to send a nice present mm-hmm. and a nice card. Yeah, I, I underline that too, that just, just it's okay to not go to the wedding. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one thing that I wanted to point out first is um, not to get, you know, weighted down in like poly semantics, but you don't really have an open marriage. You have a don't ask, don't tell policy. And this is something that I always tell people is not really a great idea because it just, this is something that doesn't work in a long-term situation, even though, yes, it has worked for 10 years, you're, you're back at the drawing board. And it's because it's not something that's based in negotiation and consent and boundaries and having an ongoing conversation about what that means. Like people do change, relationships change, and there needs to be continuous check-ins about that. And, and it's really, it, it's so sad. It's hard for me to hear that's like your wife doesn't want to discuss this with you. Right. I think there's a reason that don't ask, don't tell wasn't a successful policy in real life. C- correct. Exactly. You know, so like yeah. when people are like, that's the policy we have, I'm like, well, do I have some news for you about don't ask, don't tell? 
yeah. famously did not work out. And that doesn't mean that everyone who has any kind of uh, a non-monogamous arrangement mm-hmm. has to be talking about it daily. You both have to be getting an erotic thrill out of it. I understand that there are lots of arrangements where someone's like, I don't want to need or, or need to know constant details. But if if the if the arrangement is just, I never want to hear about it, I never want to know anything about it, you figure this out and leave me alone, that's not really an arrangement. It's uh, we're pretending that there's not a problem. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good point. And there's a lot of different kinds of relationships to have and like in poly and stuff. And I always recommend for people to read um, Opening Up by Tristan Tamarino, what, even if they're not necessarily wanting an open relationship or don't know what they want because it's such a great book just about communication and just thinking through different kinds of relationships and things. And and something that I also found interesting is that it seems like this person, he wants um, like a long-term arrangement that's sexual, but that isn't, um, as he said, like it's not about hookups. Like they want someone that's steady and that's totally fine and great. And, you know, whatever it is you decide with your wife, I just want to make a point that, you know, as a sex worker, that you can also have that relationship with a sex worker. Like some of my clients I've been seeing longer than my longest like personal relationship. Um, And, you know, that's a possibility. But again, it's something that, uh, you know, we're not in your marriage. Like that needs to be talked about, negotiated, even though it sucks and it's like a shitty hard conversation. Like it is. And it sounds like you've already been through a lot in terms of counseling, but it's time to go back and, and talk through that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm so glad you brought up a couple of those points because mm-hmm. and I feel like I'm I'm trying to answer answer this Get from like three different angles. Mm-hmm. So one of them is just I, I wonder if your wife is getting all the support that she needs. I don't mean from you. You you sound like you're trying really hard. Mm-hmm. I just mean in general, whatever that illness was, um, whatever particular trauma she might have experienced around childbirth, mm-hmm. um, whatever might be going on with her physically, emotionally, is she seeing a therapist just of her own? Yeah. Is she like getting support from her friends? Does she have any words for the way she experiences her own body or her own pain? Is she still in chronic pain? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think you need to ask her those questions so that you can try to like, quote unquote, fix her sex drive. I just mean that's really valuable information to have about how she understands her relationship to to sex and, and to celibacy. So I, I think there's a lot you could stand to learn from her that, again, won't necessarily change your arrangement where she doesn't want to have sex and you do. But just because it's, I think, good to know what's going on with your partner. Yeah. And and I think there's also just it, there's like some details we don't know. And it's like what you know, I always uh, talk about like, what is sex, you know, and it's like a lot of people, especially in, you know, cis heteronormative relationships thinks it's like, you know, penis vagina. That's like all it is. And it's like there's a lot of different ways to have sex or be sexy with your partner. And like, what does that mean where it's like if you only want this one kind of thing or like are there other ways to explore that together and like having other kinds of forms of intimacy or even sexual intimacy and like what is is there like a, somewhere in the middle like that you can reach to it's like because it's like a very extreme to be complete or you know to be totally celibate and it's like we don't know why and like are there other ways to be sexy and intimate with each other that that you can explore together. But again, it's like, yeah, is the wife in therapy? Like, are you in therapy again? Can you go back to couples therapy again? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, too, one thing that I think is important to clarify is like totally understand that you want to find another vow. Mm-hmm. Totally understand why you're looking for this type of intimacy and companionship. And I think that that's understandable, good fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't promise you that if you do the following five things, you will get that. Like yes. whether or not you are married and looking for outside companionship, whether or not you are single and hoping to get married, whether or not you are in an open relationship and hoping to find three new girlfriends, um, just because you know what you want and you want it very much does not necessarily mean you will find somebody else who wants that same thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I think like just that bit about um uh, trying to f- uh, the few women that he connected with were not interested after right. finding out the arrangement, and that sucks. But it's also just yeah. like that might happen. Yeah. Um. So one of the things I think you just have to be prepared for is you have every right to pursue this. You have every right to seek it out. Um. I cannot promise you that you will find it, and it will be important to figure out what will you do. How will you deal with those feelings of disappointment and sadness? How will you build a life that still feels like meaningful and important? And I, I, I really think you know, to say hooking up with strangers or hiring a sex worker are both off the table is like, I don't know what your other options are here. Because <laughs> yeah. you say like, yeah. I've been with four women. Um, presumably one of them is your wife. Presumably the other one is Val, who is now 
no longer interested in continuing your arrangement. So like unless you can go find those other two women, you're going to have to either go out with a stranger. Yes. Someone you don't already know. Like, I mean, I guess you could start hitting on your other female friends, but like. No, that's not a good. I don't recommend that. Yeah. I mean, I think it says a lot where it's like the other people he tried to connect with just were like, oh, you're married. And then when they found out the arrangement, they didn't want any part of it. And I think that's very telling because they knew that this was going to blow up or this wasn't going to be very um, forefront because it's like unless like. You know, affairs are like two people wildly cheating or like you have and that's not good. Which right. Because sometimes people are like, ooh, like a torrid affair. Hell yeah. And then yeah. it's like, oh, oh, you two have talked about it. It's just sad. Man. Oh, yeah. But or that they know that it's a don't ask, don't tell policy. They're like, oh, no, I want to yes. have an open relationship that's honest right. and authentic. I see what you mean. It's like you're, you're in like the completely unsexy hard road middle of like. Yeah, my wife knows, but we're not going to talk about it. So, like, you don't get the benefit of, like, the sexy, torrid, like, thing that you right. we, you shouldn't do. Don't do it. We've all done it, but don't do it. You know, <laughs> and you don't get, like, the open, authentic, poly, actual open marriage. Um, so that's why that's not going to work. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the last thing that I would just say is I, I, I really I don't know when you say that it's off the table if it's because you don't like the idea of it or if it's because your wife has said, I'm not OK with that. Um to me, the hint seems to be even if I had any clue how to successfully do it, like I can't imagine myself doing those things. And and so I would just say, like, those two options should be on the table. Yes. Um, and you should, the, the, the you know, how do you successfully do it? Try, be polite, <laughs> Try, be respectful, yeah. pay and tip well <laughs> Try, if you're yeah. seeing somebody who charges for their time mm-hmm. and like don't take rejection personally if it's mm-hmm. like attempting to hook up with strangers and and keep trying it until you get better at it. Yeah, I think it's I mean, it's, it's also like, you know, the fact that you had an arrangement like this for 10 years um, and it worked out really well. Like, I think that is sort of good, but it's also really rare that that happened. Right. And so I think you're like, wait, now I'm back to, at the drawing board, but you're not at. Uh, you're at the same drawing board that you were 10 years ago because nothing actually got resolved or worked through the first time around in this relation in with the relationship with your wife. You just sort of lucked out with like your ex-girlfriend, like whatever her her stake in this was, you know, whatever, that it just worked out and it didn't um nothing different happened so you're you're right like by the math that you we talked about earlier you only have like two other ex-girlfriend options and right. like that's not gonna work yeah put put strangers and sex workers back on the table and therapists yes all on the same table have a foursome and you know <laughs> yeah and then i think the like last bit that i would say is you say that your wife is not interested in talking about this anymore so i i'm also just aware like you can't force her to talk oh of course not I, I, yeah i think it would be helpful if you could maybe go back and say like i get that this is hard i get that this is tiring if i have been bringing this up in a way that makes it feel like i'm badgering you or i'm trying to make you fix this problem for me i'm really sorry partly i just want to know more about how you're doing, how you're feeling are there other areas of our marriage that we should be investing our time and energy into So it's not just always talking about my outside sex life, Mm -hmm. but then also to say, like, I do need to talk about this with you some. You are my wife. Mm -hmm. And even if this is not a a thing we want to talk about weekly or monthly, we need to talk about it a little bit. Are you willing to go to like three therapy sessions with me? Like, can you give me anything? Yeah, I think that's a really good and non-threatening way to to put that because, again, you can't, like, force someone to talk about something. And it's, like, I think it's a better method instead of being, like, how can we talk about my outside sex? Like, no one wants to talk about that and you're going to, like, w- retreat into your shell. But to talk more of it in a way, like, where are you at kind of thing? Like, can we talk about that? Like, wh- what's going on for you? What, what happened then? Is there something different or uh, better that I can talk to you about it now or moving forward? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, good luck. I'd love to hear back from you. I would love to know, like, what a a further, more developed version of this conversation Mm -hmm. looks like. Yeah. Um, this next one, we're, we've been like kind of escalating in terms of seriousness, and this next <laughs> yeah, one this is one <laughs> really just like devastating oh, and yeah. painful. And so um, I just I really feel for this letter writer, and I want to try to think really carefully about how best to advise them. So the subject here is what to do when a suicide attempt involves someone else. Dear Prudence, a year ago, my very young teenage daughter jumped in front of a semi-truck. She survived and has had several surgeries and lots of physical and psychological therapy. She's now physically fine. She still continues with her therapy and struggles with depression. I've spent the last year consumed by doctor and therapy appointments, and I haven't had much time to think of anything else. But as time has gone by, I find myself constantly thinking about the semi-truck driver. Does he have PTSD? Is he afraid to drive? Does he even care? 
He doesn't know that she intentionally crossed the road in front of him. He wasn't on the highway when the accident occurred. She was out for a walk in an area by our house that has no crosswalks, and kids often dart across the road there just to get to the convenience store on the other side. We all thought she had just misjudged the distance of the truck and thought she could make it. The truck driver wasn't charged, and we haven't had any contact with him since. It wasn't until a few weeks later in the hospital that she told us about the suicide attempt. I have the driver's address off of the police report, and I don't know if I should write to him and let him know that she is okay. Should I tell him it was intentional or just stick with telling him that she's okay? He doesn't have our contact information because my daughter is a minor and it's redacted on the police report. We didn't trade information with him otherwise, so only I can contact him. But I'm also afraid he'd sue us for emotional distress if he knows where we are. I've actually heard of that in an old version of your own column. Quote, I hit a child with my car and have to sue his parents in order to afford therapy. Dear Prudence, September 15th, 2016. I want to do the right thing, but I couldn't handle a lawsuit as our family is already barely hanging on after this tragedy. Sorry, I feel like I stumbled over most of the sentences in this letter. And and part of that's just because it's... um, unimaginably painful. Yeah, but it is. It's really tragic. And um, I mean, I'm glad that your daughter is okay. Um, I think the, you know, when you said like being in, in therapy, it was unclear if it, the daughter was just in therapy or also is this parent in therapy, because that's probably something that that should happen, whether that's therapy on your own or possibly therapy with your daughter. So I just hope that you're it, it's hard when you're taking care of someone else so much that you lose yourself in that and then the focus is now, like a year later, onto another person who's involved in this. But I, I hope that there's like a more care for the the letter writer. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that that was a really good point too. I mean, I, I agree. I, I would not advise this letter writer to get in touch with a yes, truck driver totally. at all. Yeah, leave well enough alone. <laughs> um, I, I would also say. In addition to getting a therapist for yourself, if you haven't already, I would potentially encourage you to talk to a lawyer just to get a little bit of a sense of like why that's not a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And in addition to like all the ways in which I don't think it would benefit anyone for for you to share this information with a truck driver, um, you you know, your daughter is a suicidal child. Mm -hmm. I I, I don't like she's okay. She's okay. The truck driver did not kill her. Mm like the degree to which this information could not help him in any way uh, just feels really high. Like I, I understand that there's a part of you that feels like this overwhelming sense of like guilt and responsibility because you didn't know that your child was in that level of pain. And you're also concerned about this guy because you sound like a compassionate person. But I think the place to unpack all of these thoughts and concerns is in therapy. If he has PTSD, if he's afraid to drive, if he is like mostly fine about it he will have to as an as an adult and a stranger to you get that support elsewhere in his own life he he, you as the parents of the child he hit are uniquely unqualified which is like a phrase i often like to use in this podcast (laughs) when there's like somebody where it's like almost anyone in the world can help you with this problem except me Mm -hmm. like you are uniquely unqualified to help him with this um if he's a professional truck driver he's got insurance Mm -hmm. Uh, you know this is not unfortunately this is not too uncommon like truck companies often have insurance for moments like this he can seek out a therapist to help him cope Um, he can talk to a doctor he can go to a support group he can turn to his own friends and family Um, I I don't I think it would be too painful for him to hear from you if you're really like I just need someone to tell him that the kid's okay I would encourage you to contact the police who also have his information and ask Mm -hmm. if they'd be able to pass that information along yeah. But that would be the most I would encourage you to do. Yeah, I co-sign on everything you said. Like contact a lawyer about why that might not be the best idea, but if yeah, I, maybe the police like saying at least like that this person is okay or your daughter is okay and also I mean this um I don't know like also truck drivers if they're like in union there's like other support like you said it's like this is sort of a thing that most people think is might happen. Like you're a truck driver. These are the tragedies that might happen. And there's probably more support there. And I think you need to continue concentrating on uh, helping your daughter and, and helping yourself and your family get through this tragic um, circumstance that is, that is ongoing. We're not out of the woods yet, you know, kind of deal. So Right. Right. And again, if, if he needed to sue you to get therapy, like he'd be able to go through the police report mm-hmm. um, or he'd be able to ask his insurance report, uh, company to uh, like 
make a claim against that information. He does not need to get a letter from you in order to mm-hmm. take that step. So please don't feel like the only thing stopping him from suing us to pay for therapy that he needs is the fact that he doesn't know our address and I need to give it to him so that things are actually fair. Um, I think that's like um, kind of like late onset survivor's guilt. I don't know that that's quite the expression I would use here, but like (laughs) guilt over an accident that you didn't cause Mm -hmm. and that you weren't aware of at the time Mm -hmm. was a suicide attempt. So Mm -hmm. just again, I think you are trying to put too much on your own shoulders Mm -hmm. here and you you deserve some therapy of your own and maybe a chat with a lawyer if you really need a reminder of why this would not be a good idea. Agreed. And I'm just sorry. This sounds like yeah, an awful that's year. Rough. Yeah. Yeah. Hope things are better um, on the on the mend. On the mend. I do too. Yeah. All right. We're gonna move on to someone who's scared to move in with their boyfriend, which I just find like very very sweet. This is very sweet. This is a very sweet problem. I might also rope Grace in for this one. Oh, okay. Listeners, yeah. Grace has been just hanging out with us in the studio, and we don't have to, obviously. But I thought this was sweet, and that you might have some thoughts about this as someone who lives with me. I'm happy to do that. That's so great. Okay. Um, Actually, would you read this letter? Scared to move in with my boyfriend? Yeah. Okay. It's my first time ever living with a partner, and I am shocked at how scared and sad I find myself. I'm leaving a place I've lived in for eight years, which was the first place in this foreign country that really felt like home. And my roommate has been like family here. I'm a woman, and the roommate is a man. We always joked that we had a companionate marriage. There's never been anything physical between us. I can't even think of it. Or romantic feelings. But I do think our relationship was slightly codependent. He's never dated anyone in the time we've lived together. So I got a lot of emotional tending. I find myself bursting into tears while packing up. And I've already postponed leaving for a week. My boyfriend has been moved into our new place for three weeks. I'm worried that my hesitation is cruel to my partner. It would certainly hurt my feelings if someone was obviously dragging their feet on moving in with me. How do I figure out whether these feelings are just jitters about a big change or whether they are indicative of something I'm not admitting to myself about this relationship? Is it normal to freak out about moving in with someone? I always see people talk about it with nothing but bliss or like this joyous next step. And while I'm excited, I can't help mourning the life I'm leaving and find it my main focus. How do I move past this or remedy it? This was really sweet. Um, I feel like there's a number of ways that I could think about this. Um, But I just also want to acknowledge, like, I don't think it should necessarily be your goal to um, only experience joy and bliss in like heterosexual pairing off and moving Mm -hmm. into a really like siloed existence. Like Mm -hmm. it makes like, I I don't think it's like, Oh no, it's so weird that you miss this person who's been your family for eight years. Like, get over that like of course you're sad of course you're gonna can't help but mourn the life you're leaving of course you can mourn that you've had a really wonderful roommate situation and that's amazing and beautiful and this person was your exactly like your family it was a a friend it's like you're not never going to see them again but i think people have really um terrible roommate situations all the time and we don't hear very much about really good roommate situations that are platonic um and they should be celebrated and i've been very sad to leave my roommates that were totally platonic and i've had a friend who she lived with her platonic roommate for like 10 years and i'm like what are you guys going to do they're like we don't know like every we've been living together for such a long time and it's so uh it, it's hard change is hard sometimes even if it's change that you want because this person does sound excited is excited yeah i mean i i would say like the 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 bit that i'm sitting with is i'm shocked at how scared and sad i find myself to me that feels like more than just jitters mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean you're necessarily making the wrong decision mm-hmm. i think one of the things that will be helpful is to remind yourself like people are allowed to break up People mm-hmm. are allowed to move. Like, you've just moved out with one person. Yeah. If things go really badly and if you're really unhappy, you can break your lease with your boyfriend, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that won't feel like a relief. It's like, don't worry. Soon you'll <laughs> break up and this will all have been for naught. But just, no. like, you are not putting yourself... What do they call it? The, like, relationship escalator 
where like once you've made the step towards moving in, then it has to be getting married, then it has to be kids, oh, yeah, then yeah, it has yeah, to yeah. be closing yourself off from the rest of the world. Like, yeah. Um, well, it also, I mean, this person says that it's the first time living with a partner, um, so that's different, and and I think that that brings up some things. And like, you know, again, it's like you don't have to live with your partner to you know to to have a partner. Like, it's totally right. okay. Goldie to, Hawn and Kurt Russell, as everyone's always saying. Oh, they don't live together. Like semi famously, they like live. I th- I want to say like in a duplex with a door that like oh, opens up and everyone's always like I want to be like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn by which they usually mean like wealthy which like same <laughs> which they mean duplex yeah, yeah. I think okay. you know I agree with all of this I I think my tendency will always be to try to relativize the heterosexual dyad in some way and to try mm-hmm. to think about the ways in which you have lived with a partner for eight years mm-hmm. and yeah. um, that partnership has been primary for you even as it has been non-sexual and um you know, there are elements of this where that you are hinting at something that you know but don't know how to articulate or something mm-hmm. that you know but don't want to attach language to, something I'm not admitting to myself about this relationship, as you say in that last paragraph. Um, you know, the, the kind of cheesy Hollywood answer to that is, oh my God, I was in love with my boy, my roommate all along. Yeah. And that probably is not the case. It doesn't have to be the only mm-hmm. answer. But my point is simply that um, you don't need to figure this as moving upstairs or or taking a step up the escalator. This is a movement from one kind of living situation to another kind of living situation. And, you know, I I, I read this and I think if you have postponed moving out for a week right at the end and you're feeling this this degree of doubt, um, I I, I do get a sense that maybe you don't actually want to move out. Maybe you do want to find some way of continuing your relationship with your partner that doesn't entail your living together. And of course, if that is the case, then learning it at this point is rather inconvenient for you and for him. And I assume that that would be the cause of difficult conversations. And, and you would be required, I think, to, to kind of hold space for those in the context of your relationship if you could. Um, but that, that's how I read this. I, I read this as you don't really want to move out and, and you, wanna, you want it to be possible to live with someone that is not your primary sexual partner. And I want that to be possible for you too. And and maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting, you know. But that's that's my sense of these words. Yeah, yeah. Because I think too, there's potentially the fear could be um, because I'm just realizing this now. The timing is too bad. My job is to get over it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, maybe you move in and things go great. That's certainly a possibility. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that the right way forward for you is going to be swallow these feelings. And just never let my boyfriend know and just move on forever. Like, I think at some point you will need to come back and pay attention to this. So you don't say much in here about what your your roommate f- is saying or mm-hmm. doing. It might help if you two can just spend a little time together talking about, like, what are the ways in which we want to continue the primacy of our relationship even as we don't live mm-hmm. together? How are you doing about this? And I think to say to your boyfriend... Like your boyfriend already knows you've been putting it off. So I don't think by naming it now that you're going to be surprising or, <laughs> yeah. or hurting him. I mean, again, he may find it hurtful, but you feel the way that you feel. Your choices here are acknowledge it with him or don't. It's not hope that my feelings change if I just don't talk about them. You will. That doesn't work. So I, would, I think I would say something like, I just want to talk about the fact that I've put this off. I've been surprised by this. I didn't anticipate this. Mm-hmm. This feels really hard for me, and I'm just of two minds a lot. There's also ways in which I'm excited. I feel very clear on my love for you, um, but I'm not sure that moving in together is, like, the only permanent change I want in my life. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? And maybe he'll say, like, thanks for sharing it with me. That's kind of tricky, but, like, we can just give it a shot for six months or a year and see how it goes. He may say, I'm really upset. If you're not sure about this, let's break up right now, and that would be awful. But at Mm -hmm. least you would both know how you felt, you know? Um, so I would I would just mostly say talk to both of them. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I don't know what ways you feel like your relationship with your roommate was codependent. Maybe it was. But don't feel that you have to call it codependent just because it was a very close relationship with a man who didn't date other people. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. I'm not quite. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything you said. But I think also um, it's telling like when 
um, the, yeah, the relationship elevator uh, escalator. It's like, oh, we're, we've been together for so long with my boyfriend, so now we have to move in. And, you know, the, the letter writer says, I always see people talk about it with nothing but bliss or this is the joyous next step. It's like half of those people are lying. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. They are lying. They're lying to They are. And it's like, I mean, and that doesn't mean to say that, like, there aren't, like, incredibly happy pe- uh, people, couples that are living happily together, but there's also couples that are living happily apart. And yeah. it's like, I think that this is a big change. And it's also, um, think about, like, the first time you moved in with your roommate. Like, was that scary and weird and hard? Because it was, like, a foreign country. And this was the first time, it sounds like, I don't know if you had lived with anyone else before, obviously not a romantic partner, but moving to a new country. I'm sure that was scary and weird. And I don't know what's going on. And then that, like, worked out beautifully. And then it's like, if it didn't work out, then you would have made a change. But it just happened to work so lovely for eight years. That's a good thing. That's a positive thing. That is an eight-year relationship. That is much longer than a lot of people have. And mm-hmm. yeah, talk about, talk to both your your boyfriend and your maybe new ex-roommate about going forward and, and what that's going to look like. And, you know, um, ways that like the living situation is going to change and if you want it to change and it it's hard for me to tell like one way or the other if they really like, really need to stay or they really need to go because I feel like it could go either way they just have to sit with themselves and discuss it with both of these people that are important in their lives and yeah. and figure that out yeah and like I think the last idea I would maybe float out is like maybe at some point the three of you might want to live together I don't know what kind of relationship yeah. your boyfriend and your former roommate have with each other I don't know if it's sort of like a, a sort of like I don't want to think about it too much because I'm worried you two are too close or maybe they get along really great. But like you can float that as a possibility. Lots of couples have roommates. Lots of couples have people who live with them that they're really close with. I'm not necessarily suggesting like you all need to be in an open relationship, but like some some version of acknowledging like the emotional intimacy that I have with this other guy is real and important. And I don't want to just like consign it to my past because you and I are committed to one another. I really like the idea. I didn't think about that, but it's like that's a different I, I'm always into like queer cohabitation. <laughs> like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, especially if this other guy, it sounds like the two of you are not physically attracted to one another. And like, you know, that's a, an easier uh, opportunity to to express to a partner who maybe previously has not expressed any interest in any sort of um, alternative arrangements. Yeah. All right. So I I really want to hear back from that letter writer. So letter writer, if you're listening, please let us know how these conversations go. If you find your feelings change, the more you talk about them, just mostly I I, I hope that you give yourself permission to talk about these because none of what you're feeling sounds like keep that to yourself or get over it. So this last letter, uh, the subject is drowning in misgendering which is just, I can picture that. I can visualize that. I can imagine what that feels like. Uh, Dear Prudence, I moved abroad last year, and a few months ago I came out to my progressive but very cis and straight family as agender. It went well. There weren't too many weird questions, and they even made some supportive comments. They've even been surprisingly good about using my new name. I shortened my given name to a unisex nickname. Unfortunately, using they-them pronouns have been really difficult for my family members. I haven't heard them getting mixed up very often since I'm in another country, but my parents and one of my six siblings recently came to visit me, and the misgendering was nonstop. I don't want to constantly correct them and be that person, but hearing gendered pronouns ten times in a minute is hard. They seem to have the memory of a goldfish. When I correct them, they'll misgender me again in the next sentence. They obviously felt bad, but they didn't change their behavior. I'm going home for the holidays soon, and I'm not sure how to handle being misgendered. I've tried asking them to correct themselves and each other, but it doesn't happen much. I feel like a stickler when I correct them, and when I let it slide, I feel really sensitive and have a hard time enjoying myself. I know I'm, quote, better at pronouns because I have to think about them constantly, but sometimes I feel like my family members won't remember unless I tattoo they, them on my forehead. My bisexual sister is the only other member of the family who's remotely queer, and she's not even going to be there. So I don't really have any backup. Should I ask them to practice before I get there? Do you know of any resources I can send them? Oh, the I myth. defer to you too. <laughs> like, oh, the myth of there's a resource I can send to my family that will substitute for trying imaginativeness and listening to the requests that I make of them. I don't recommend any resources unless and until they demonstrate more of an interest. Like, that's not to say that I'm anti-resource, but I just think what you want is for your family members to... It's not a problem of degree. It's a problem of kind. Yeah, exactly. Like you The ask, problem is that they are not using the resources that are available, which is you. 
yeah, I think asking them to practice before you get there is a great idea. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there's always that tension between when I don't say anything, I feel hypersensitive and I can sense my temper getting short. When I do say something, they just totally ignore it. Um, and I'm so I'm worried that if I ask them to pay attention again, they will ignore me more. And then I will be really faced with um, the full weight of how much my family does not actually care about or respect my identity. I feel, as I often do in these conversations, obliged to do the the, the good trans person thing of saying slipping up once or twice is okay. Um, you know, that there's there's a difference that is a that is more than a quantitative difference between somebody who uh, refuses to learn the, the the kind of basic structures that govern a person's identity and the ways in which they are being asked they've asked those who care about them to refer to them. Um, and and people who make perfectly understandable mistakes every now and then, that latter um, can become its own kind of problem, but it isn't the problem that we're facing here. What we're facing here is clearly a situation where um, the attempts that you have made to ask for a very reasonable accommodation from people in your life are being met with stonewalling um, and, and frankly what sort of sounds like contempt and it would make me in your situation um, very angry I yeah. you know I, I, I feel a degree of activation reading the letter um, so you know you should know that this is not a treatment that you have to put up with um, it's not a uh, it, it, you're not the weirdo here you're not you're not you're not doing anything uh, that isn't perfectly reasonable right and and the situation where they like um, are clearly completely ignoring your request um, and not acknowledging that is designed to make you feel like you're going insane mm-hmm. and you're not um, insane for acknowledging it. Um, and, and so even that language of like you put in quotes better at pronouns. So I'm guessing that's language that either they have used about mm-hmm. you or that you're worried they would use about you. It's not really like it's not like, I don't know, the high jump where it's like, oh, man, they're really good at pronouns. Like they just have this innate <laughs> ability. It's like it's literally just thinking and trying. It's just a word. Like it's literally just a new word that they can remind themselves to use. They can say things to themselves like, my child now uses they, them pronouns. I'm going to practice that in a sentence. There, I practice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Um, I-, I was thinking a lot about this um, and uh, how to show up as a good ally. And I'm wondering, like, I was thinking, like, why is it easier for people to sort of adopt a nickname and not a pronoun? And I was trying to think through this and. I think we assign people nicknames all the time, whether we want them or not, you know, and mm-hmm. a shorter nickname. And it's this person's been thinking about. And I just want to say a gender is just non-binary, you know, that's not having a gender or identifying with the gender. And it's this has been a few months and, and it's so hard, like trying to, you know, e- either way, you're like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to say something too much. And I was sort of thinking of other creative ways to get everyone on board. But, yes, definitely talk to them about it before they get here. Um, you know, you say you don't have a sister. Um, can you bring a friend? Can you who is your next closest ally at your family meetup? Because it sounds like you're this one person and your immediate family is already eight people, two parents and six siblings. Right. That's a lot of people to be up against and to constantly hear the the incorrect pronoun. Um, it, yeah, it's very triggering. I, I, I understand how that would be not feeling so great. Um, and I, I, I totally am with you on the mm-hmm. nickname thing, because I imagine they're just like, oh, my kid has a new nickname that sounds a lot like their birth name. No big deal. It, yeah. But the change that requires them to actually think about something like transness or agenderness mm-hmm. or gender identity at all is like, I won't go there. The, it's different. And it's also, it sounds like you're not around them that often. You don't even live in the same country. Um, so something that I was thinking through, it's like not having the tattoo, but if you felt comfortable doing something like having a pin that says they, them, I don't know if that's a possibility or like, I don't know if you could make your family more active participant. Like, I didn't know if this is like a cheesy idea or like your family wants to be creative and like make like fun stickers and like, let's all talk about our pronouns. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's like a possibility or like anything that like people want to do because they don't, they don't understand your pronouns in the way that you do and the conversations we have with people i don't know like i don't know i'm just trying to think of like how to make it more participatory totally. versus one person against eight right because right, that's right. what's happening now and no one's happy with this right. and i don't get the impression that this family is it you know yes they, yeah. they need to do more and they need to do better of course they do but i don't get the impression that they're um uh doing it because they 
I don't know if they don't like you know I don't I don't know why they're doing it, but it, it's hard yeah. when it's one person against eight. Sure. So just trying to make evil uh, a more uh, level playing ground. I don't know. Yeah. I totally appreciate the idea about trying to um, encourage participation and encourage mm-hmm. a kind of like more uh, active form of learning. But mm-hmm. I will say, you know, and maybe this is just the kind of frame of mind I've been in for the last few mm-hmm. weeks, but I I am a little bit over families being supportive but getting pronouns wrong mm-hmm. and, and and us assuming that that is always a kind of good faith uh, ignorance. Um, it, it may very well mm-hmm. be. Certainly I've met some people for whom that is true, but I've also met quite a lot of people and encountered quite a lot of people um, who claim that that is true, but it is not true. It's a very common claim. It's a very and common claim. claim for, rarely borne out. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea that somebody could take this position and not also be motivated by some kind of contempt or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, bloody mindedness or a kind of like refusal, in fact, of an active kind mm-hmm. to participate in their kid's life. Um, you know, I, I think they, they, are, they, they probably are. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I read this and I see the kind of complacency that more often than not disguises a kind of aggression and negativity. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, that that's I'm reading a little bit into the words there because mm-hmm. it isn't explicitly stated, but um I will say that that that's kind of where I basically come from and if that is true and I encourage you as I would encourage everyone to try to read people generously as far mm-hmm. as is possible, um but if you come to the conclusion that that is the case, then it is more at that point a matter of how to protect you from your family than how to recruit your family into your um, way of thinking about yourself and at that point the conversation would be more about like how do you set effective limits for yourself in relation to um, people in your life who are hurting you um, yeah so I don't think we're necessarily there yet but we might be yeah yeah I think again the the good news is you only came out a couple of months ago and it sounds like you haven't had a lot of bigger scale quest- or conversations to check in so I think mm-hmm. The time to check in is now before you travel mm-hmm. um, and to say, you know, and you can do the sort of the compliment sandwich of like, really glad that coming out went so well. Love how great you've been about mm-hmm. using my new name. I noticed that you never use my new pronouns. And I wanted to talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can either. And I think it's just good to acknowledge like you mm-hmm. don't don't mm-hmm. don't don't try to couch it softly or gently. Just We're trying. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. No, no. Say that you don't. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. I think that's a good point. But, exactly. But acknowledge that they're using the nickname. Yeah, I think absolutely. that's important. That's the and, and so if they say because that way if they try to say like we're trying you can say like okay um i, I just want to talk about what's happening mm-hmm. and what's happening is you exclusively use gendered pronouns to refer to me so whatever attempts you may be making i'm not seeing them can you tell me what that looks like mm-hmm. my guess is you will get a hemming and hawing answer and it'll be like uh i'm trying and I think getting specific and saying, like, what are you doing to practice is is a real. And again, you don't have to, like, say it in a way that's like, I'm putting you on trial because I know you're lying and I'm going to get a confession out of you. Yeah. Um, but it'd be really helpful to just say, like, what work have you done? Do you practice it? Mm-hmm. Do you use your imagination? Do you seek out resources about people who use gender neutral pronouns? Mm-hmm. And then if they're like, oh, no, I haven't be like, it would mean a lot to me if you would. Um, again, you know, I'm just thinking of all the times that people have said to me, I'm trying as a way of indicating I'm not doing anything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a general orientation that I do not want you to feel angry towards me. So, you know, if I if I if I claim that I am yeah. on your side in a vague sense, then you know, you won't ask too many questions about yeah. my actual practice in relation to you. If someone's really trying, they will be able to give you some specifics about what trying looks like for them. Yeah. And so again, you're not doing this in like an aha gotcha kind of a tone, but you're just trying to acknowledge reality. And so, uh, you know, however that conversation goes, I think one thing you can say is just like, you know, whatever trying looks like for you, I hope that you will continue to try. Um, I, I, I feel like we've had a couple of, yeah, (laughs) I feel like we've had a couple of months now for you to get adjusted to it. It's not just that I prefer they, them. I don't answer to gendered pronouns. Mm -hmm. So I am going to say something in the moment. And if I need to go take a break, I will. I want you to know that now. So you're not surprised by it. Um, And I think like framing it in that in those terms as I don't answer to gendered pronouns because I think there's often that tendency on the part of anybody who's like changing pronouns or transitioning in any way or um, to say like I would like this but I will accept anything you give me because I don't want you to think that I'm an unreasonable person right and I don't think it's unreasonable or harsh or unkind to say I don't answer to those pronouns Mm -hmm. 
So uh, I think that's worth it. I think it will be good to build in a little time during your family trip to plan a walk that you'll take like after the main meal, um, schedule a phone call with a friend who is also like a gender or non-binary or trans or even just like mm-hmm. chill. Um, and if the trip is just like everyone's resistant, nobody's mm-hmm. really trying and you decide next holiday season, I'm going to go somewhere else. That's a perfectly reasonable response to have. Last time I was on this show, I think, I spent some time talking about, like, there was another pronouns question. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking then about how most of the discourse around pronouns, including this letter to some extent, focus on how to get people to say the thing that we want them to say and how to deal with people who refuse to do that. And it all makes it sound like this is a conversation essentially about speech codes Mm -hmm. and... Um, monitoring other people's language. And I think that it's really helpful for us just always to remember, you know, when I ask someone to use a certain set of pronouns to describe me, I'm telling them something important about me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm making a disclosure about something that matters to me. I'm not kind of capriciously trying to push someone into some form of um, enunciation that doesn't feel natural to them. I'm actually saying something that matters. I'm saying this, I've thought about myself very hard. I have um, gone through a long process of introspection. I've talked to other people about it. And this is honestly who I think I am and how I think I make sense in the world. And I would really love it if the people around me could help me make sense of myself in the world um, in this way. And it hurts when you don't. And it feels uh, mystifying. And as though my existence has diminished to the point of negativity, to the point of non-existence. So please, uh, you know, I guess I'm just kind of repeating what I said last time, but it's just like, this isn't about how do we police people? You know, I am not interested in policing people. This letter writer clearly isn't interested in policing people either. Um, This isn't a kind of speech cops game. Um, what we're trying to do is think about how do we live together and live together in ways that feel humane and able to sustain the complex inner lives of every human being. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot. Some of that's practical. Some of it's more just thinking about what what do we want to surround ourselves with. I'm glad that this is uh, something you only have to worry about for a couple of days this year. Um, and I hope that at least some of the members of your family um respond well to this next uh, stage of the conversation. But yes, I too am also very much in the mindset of like, I there, there just needs to be an expiration date to say I'm trying. You can say that for six months and then you need to stop saying it um, because it, it very often is cover for, I don't ever want you to notice what I do and don't do. Mm-hmm. And trying is like a spiritual attitude that I can use as cover for the rest of my life to do and say whatever I want. Um, Estrange yourself from your family of origin 2020. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my. Okay. Um, Could I also say, I wonder, um, I'm, yes, absolutely everything both of you have said. And obviously, this is something you're experiencing in different ways than I am. I'm, I was just thinking through in in terms of um, like learning new things. Like, it's like you learn things three different ways seeing, hearing, and doing. Mm -hmm. And so I I was thinking, like, okay, hearing, obviously, this is getting very tiring, constantly correcting people, doing, okay, you have to correct them. And I'm also thinking about seeing it. Like, is it helpful? if they see your pronoun more like can you change it on your emails like your social media is that helpful to anyone um both like uh people who are using um you know gender neutral pronouns and or you know gender you know specific pronouns like uh, you know all the candidates just rolled out with their pronouns for the first time ever and i think that was a major uh step in uh, right direction bringing this sort of to the forefront to seeing that i don't know if that's something that feels comfortable or helpful but just like because it just sounds like they're tired of constantly verbally correcting someone which of course it is so are there w- other ways to sort of get people used to seeing that um in in your family and and elsewhere if that feels comfortable if that feels like an option yeah um yeah i I think that's really good because i think odds are also decent that at least some of the members of your family really do want to do better Mm -hmm. and they and they don't know and i think thinking about other ways to um help them imagine what gender neutral pronouns look and feel and sound like is is a really good idea yeah and just again, a reminder, uh, don't call the cops on someone if they live in their car mm-hmm, and don't yeah. call the cops on your certainly <laughs> annoying coworker. Um, but don't who call is the like cops. not don't harming call the you. Cops, yeah. yeah. Generally, yeah. like save that for. Yeah. Dogs and hot cars, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, and even then, <laughs> I would maybe just break a window. <laughs> well, some states you can. It's you know, it's actually not illegal in all states to leave an animal in the car. But now I think California, it is. I think it is legal to break a car window now. Oh, I wow. think it is. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anyway, we'll, we'll we'll think about that. I'm just like telling people to break car windows. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you so so much for coming on the show, both of you, mm. and um, have a wonderful rest of your Monday. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327 and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. While we're staying with the real simple stuff, mm-hmm. don't call the cops when you think oh, your coworker yeah. is having sex. <laughs> yeah. No. For starters, because like by the time they get there, she'll be done. <laughs> and also, it's not illegal to have sex. Like the cops are not going to be like, oh, man, a lady's having sex with a guy in a storeroom. Or I'm sorry, the letter writer said outside having sex. So presumably in some sort of public sex situation. Which like, again, whatever. you don't but, have but confirmation. Don't yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> no, don't call the cops just because your coworker is annoying you. Even if your coworker is annoying you a lot. Like calling the cops yeah. can ruin or end someone's life. So I think it's really yes. good to make sure that like the cops are your only option at that point. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.